Uh, welcome. Uh, my name is Adam Morton. I am a Lutheran pastor in Lancaster, Pennsylvania at present. Um, and uh, let me put it this way. If any of you have reason to call yourselves geeky, I have more. Um, I have years of experience as a dungeon master. The lovely t-shirt I'm wearing, and I will allow you to observe it in full glory, is from a miniature wargaming convention I at in Chicago I attended two weeks ago, where I was fighting with hordes of little painted Vikings against people. It was thrilling. Um, I was a physics major in college. So, point is, what is the point? The point is that I am something of an inveterate geek, and so I decided to take up a truly ridiculous topic for today. Um, well, why? why? Why would we talk about time travel in relation to justification, and really in the full sense of justification, as it was being discussed in the last hour? Uh, why would that happen? Uh, so I have a little bit of an intro here. Uh, yes, I know that. Thank you for this wonderful warning about the dangers of YouTube. You know what? I think I have this up here already. Let's try this. I knew I should have killed you when I had the chance. I should have killed you when I had the chance. I should have killed you when I had the chance! Damn it, I should have killed you when I had a chance! I should have killed you again or when I had the chance. I should have listened to Floria. Killed you while I had the chance. Should have killed you when I had the chance. I should have killed you when I had the chance, Jack. I wish I'd killed you when I had the chance. Yeah, it's right. A little too late to do anything about it. I should have shot. <laughs> that goes on for almost four and a half minutes. Wow. So let's not. Um, but why is this? There we are. This doesn't want to go full screen. Why not? Let's go full screen. Ah, because of that. There, got it. Okay. So, those people all had a problem. They missed their chance. If I should have killed you when I had you the chance, obviously I didn't, right? So this screenwriting cliche of all screenwriting cliches is actually a little bit instructive. Uh, because our relationship to time is not always or even often a comfortable one, right? We are waiting for something to happen, as I was sitting here before we began, waiting for the moment when I should start. Or we're waiting for something to be over with, so that it can be behind us. Or we are fearful that we are going to miss a chance that's upcoming, or we are regretful that we, in fact, have missed our chance already. And this is the worst problem of all, because there is no going back to fix it. So once that time has gone by, what do we do? Um, this can get very, very personal. Uh, so I was ordained a pastor in December of 2013. It's around about 21st of December, I think. 21st, 2nd, 2nd. There's a reason I don't know this and I don't remember it very clearly. Because the night before my ordination, I heard that my brother Daryl, whom I love dearly. Are you all hearing me well? Uh, my brother Daryl, whom I love dearly. He was a mess. He was always a mess, but he was the funniest and most charming person I ever knew. Uh, nine years older than, no, 11 years older. Uh, I heard he was, I knew he had been having liver problem, and then I heard he was going on hospice care the night before my ordination. I don't remember it very well. A few days later was Christmas. Early in the morning on December 26th, he died in my parents' home. You know what I remember? I remember feeling horrible that the last birthday he had, which was in July, I had gotten him something, I don't even remember what it was, it was something throwaway and thoughtless. It wasn't a very good birthday present. And so I said, I'm going to make up for it. I got him something really great for Christmas that he would love. Uh, it was actually a coloring book of sort of classic punk band, early punk bands. Um, <laughs> among other things, this is what I got him, and I knew he'd love it. You know, he never got to look at it. Uh, when something like this happens, and it doesn't have to be that dramatic, but when anything really serious happens, what you find yourself doing is, well, is there a way I could have gone back and fixed it, right? And so you rewind. I knew he was an alcoholic. 
I mean, the man drank himself to death at 46 years old. Um, well, when would I have had to have stopped him? When, when could I have gotten in the way? There was a decisive event, sort of, or a series of them. At what point could I have sort of mentally traveled back to and, well, if I had known what to say then, could I have saved him? But I can't do that now. Right? This is also how post-traumatic stress functions, roughly speaking. That instead of living normally through time, you keep circling back around to something that isn't good. You don't want to be then, there and then, I should say. But you can't escape from it. And so your mind creates sort of a time loop, right? Where you can't get past this, and it's in your past. How odd is that? Regret, post-traumatic stress, guilt, anxiety, these things all have a distinctive relationship to time. And it's problematic. Time is not our friend. Time is an enemy, and we try to control it in various ways. So I should have killed you when I had the chance, but I didn't. So there are roughly two ways this works. Um, and they mostly, it works mostly in imaginary ways because, of course, science has not gifted us with actual time travel. This is a problem. Uh, if it had, we would just fix these things, but it hasn't. And so instead, whether internally and psychologically in, an un, in a mostly unspoken way, or in a, uh, an interesting fictional way where you put it out in front of people, we deal with this problem of time. We either try to go mentally backwards or forwards behind events, or we write about characters who can really do it in order to fix things. Right? So the easier to conceptualize is travel backwards, because we know the past rather than the future. And what you're doing when you travel backwards is you're trying to travel back behind some decisive event, some moment, some judgment, so that it can be averted or changed or fixed. If you travel forward, in general what you're doing is you're traveling forward past whatever that decisive moment or judgment will be. And then you're either going to look back and see how it all unfolded, or, or you're at least going to move forward into a future where these things are already resolved. Uh, this was my deepest desire as we were coming up on, uh, well, me giving this. Because wouldn't it be nice if I were already done and had done a great job? <laughs> this is not what happens. But how many times a day in big or small ways do I wish that I could go a little bit back or a little bit forward and be at any time other than the one I'm in right now? Right? And so you have whole spiritualities and some very secular, some very religious approaches to being present, being mindful. But we all know this is incredibly hard. And it's hard because we'd almost always like to be at a different time. So fiction is our main avenue for address. And whether it's Superman rewinding the world by flying really fast backwards around it, this doesn't in fact work. And it's really too bad. Um, you know... To before those nuclear missiles hit. Or it is an aged wolverine going back in time to try to avert a certain future so that it never takes place at all. Or whether it's Q bouncing Captain Picard around time in order to put him on trial. Right? The moment of judgment comes through very clearly in that one. He's dressed like a Rather odd judge, but a judge. Uh, time travel is always about judgment, which is to say it's always about justification. This is, this is the underlying logic of all time travel stories, whatever form they take, right? Time travel is about putting things right. It is a symbol for the possibility of correcting ourselves and correcting our world. It reestablishes our relationship, whether in the past or the future, to those decisive moments. That's what I mean when I say it's about justification. Let's see. So this is me practically every Saturday 
as I, I always mean to write my sermons earlier, because I preach every week, and it doesn't quite happen. Um, and so I get to a point where I hope this works. But, but. <laughs> you know, I wish that I could just go forward past the time, which is exactly what I want to do with this presentation. I travel forward to the end, and it's already done. Or, instead of writing this at all, I could have just traveled to the future when I had done a great job, grabbed a copy of it, gone back, and then delivered it. And so what we're going to begin by doing is digging into the... Uh, the models of time at work in our time travel stories, because they're actually going to tell us a tremendous amount about not only how we conceptualize time, but this is going to be really shocking, I think, in a weird way. They're in the Bible. They're in the Bible in a big way, uh, and they have, they're, they're important for how we relate to this question of justification. <clears throat> so I'm going to start with Arnold. Uh, there are, as anybody who's read about time travel and science fiction knows, there are two sort of popular models for how time travel works. One is Terminator and one is Back to the Future. There are a lot of other variations on these, but it really pretty much comes down to these two. Terminator and Back to the Future. How does this work? Well, this goes through every Terminator movie, right? But in the first one, what's the issue? The issue is that Somehow the machines arose and they're oppressing humanity. And so a savior has been sent back from the future to Sarah Connor, the mother of John Connor, who will lead the resistance, to maybe keep this from happening or maybe preserve human life, right? To avert the moment of crisis. And then this guy, this... Uh, handsome fellow in the sunglasses is sent back to kill her. Right? This is, this is the plan. Now, there's a succession of Terminator movies. Why? Well, the good guys win in every one, don't they? It doesn't matter. Whatever they do to avert that crisis, to change it, doesn't change it. Which means it's not about whether we can avoid the war against the machines. Even at the beginning of the first movie, even though the war against the machines is far in the future, we're in fact already always in the war against the machines. This is our fundamental reality. That is what the Terminator does. So there's this model of time that's essentially a loop. It's circular. This model of time is very basic to human beings because we have calendars and we have clocks. What happens when a clock goes all the way around? It just keeps going. It doesn't stop. You don't go, oh no, my clock ran out. A few years ago, people were freaking out about the Mayan calendar. The end of the Mayan calendar. What will happen? Well, nothing. Because when you get to the end of a calendar, you go back to the beginning of the calendar. That's what a calendar is. It's a big cycle. It's a wheel. All that happens is you move on to... The Mayan calendar has some very long cycles in it. When you get to the end of one, you start over at the beginning. That's how every calendar works. It's not a linear view of time. It's a basically circular one, which means that nothing ever really changes. The seasons come and the seasons go, but they come around every year. This also means that people don't expect the world to change when they're thinking in this way, in, in decisive ways, in big ways. For most of human history, most people have thought this way, that the world doesn't fundamentally change. We're in a very weird time when we expect <clears throat> our grandchildren to live in a world very different from the one that we're in. And we think that's natural. That's a very recent development in human history. That we think the world really changes in that way. Time is a wheel for most people. This is also the way that, uh, for example, the concept of karma sort of functions. If you have a wheel... What it means is everything's going to reset itself. Everything's going to balance out. Nothing's going to change. That's why a circle is also a symbol for eternity. There's time, but to an extent, it's an illusion. So there's not that much you can change. 
Uh, I also think this way about Holy Week. Every year I get there and I think, do we have to do this again? <laughs> but we do. Uh, fate is another way. Fate is a word that Terminator movies love. Uh, fate. Because this is exactly like how the Greek myths function, right? You have the myth of Oedipus. What happens in the myth of Oedipus? There's a prophecy that the king and the queen are going to have a child who will kill his father and marry his mother. And so they do everything in their power to avert this, short of actually killing the baby boy. But they do the next best thing, right? They throw him out into the woods to die. And all of the things they do to prevent it end up circling back around to actually cause the event in which Oedipus grows up, unknowingly kills his father, and marries his mother. It's fate. You cannot avoid it. You can get used to it. Uh, another fictional representation of this, I haven't seen the TV show, I don't know what it's doing, but the movie 12 Monkeys does it perfectly. Right? You're just going to loop around right back to that exact point. You can't avoid it. Back to the Future is different. Back to the Future is a linear view of time. It's really different. <coughs> Things can actually change. There's a decisive event. And the whole point of having a time machine in Back to the Future is to get back and change things. And so if they start to go wrong, you just go back behind that and you fix it, right? If Biff Tannen in his youth accidentally got hold of this book of sports trivia and it's going to screw up the world, then you go back and you steal it from him. That's what you do. And if there's problems with your kids in the future, you have to travel back to right before those problems and fix them. It's, it's right. This means there's a possibility of a different era, of real change, of a new time. And actually, this linear view of time, various societies develop chronologies as such, but a truly linear view of time which changes seems to be something that arose with the Hebrew prophets. Oddly, it seems to come out of the scriptures itself. This is where it actually arises in human history. It's a very odd thing. We'll talk about that in just a little bit more. And just a little bit. But the point is there's an interruption. What will be does not have to match what has been in the past. So let's start to look at this in the Bible. Terminator-style time is in the Bible. It's right there. It's there even in a really obvious way, so obvious we might miss it. From Genesis 1, And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Now, what is this? Well, it's the week. When you get past the seventh day, it's not the eighth day. It's just the first day again. Um, so I'm going to use a word in reference to this because I want to distance this from our linear view of time. This is myth, and I do not mean by this that it is not true, and I do not mean that it didn't happen, that it didn't happen. What I do mean is that it is explicitly not history as we conceive it. And the reason it's explicitly not history is because in history, events happen once. This happens every week. Creation doesn't stop after the seventh day. You're back on day one. God speaks and there is light, right? On the seventh day, God rests. It is always true. This is not a linear view being presented here. Ecclesiastes 3 gives us even more of a little bit of a window into it. For everything, there's a season, time to every purpose under heaven, and you know that sequence of all the stuff. There's a time for this and a time for that. We go on a little bit further in Ecclesiastes 3. He, that is God, has made everything suitable for its time. Moreover, he has put a sense of past and future into their minds, that is, our minds. Yet they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That which is already has been, that which is to be already is, and God seeks out what has gone by. Time flows by, goes around in a circle. We don't know what's happening. There may actually be, in Ecclesiastes 3, there's a sense there might be a beginning and an end to it, but we can't see them. They're not within our experience. We're just caught in the big circle. Right? That is Terminator-style time. If these pictures of time were all we had in the scriptures, then justification would really be nothing more than coming to terms with what is. 
And Ecclesiastes is sort of okay with that, right? That is, there's nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry. Do good stuff, enjoy what life you have. But Ecclesiastes doesn't try to say what's going to happen at the end when the times change. It doesn't have that in view. It's not what it's talking about. So, in these two passages, what we don't have is something that is yet sort of explicitly Christian about the way we, we relate to time. Uh, they recognize the one God, to be sure. They are part of our scriptures. They're part of our beliefs. But there's something that isn't there yet. Back to the future. And we describe time as a circle. I'm calling this splitting the circle because linear time arises out of that circular view, but with a change. The change is this. There is an intervention, a decisive event, and that circle gets cut somehow and stretches out into a line. And when it stretches out into a line, then you also have, when you think about this decisive event, you have something that can put the line to a stop, to a dead standstill, and something new can rise out of it. What is that new thing? The phrase starts getting, now maybe this starts earlier, well before the prophets. Perhaps it comes from God interrupting Abraham's life with a promise and a command. Uh, why don't you get up out of here, out of the land of your fathers, and go to the land that I am sending you to? Uh, or maybe it starts with God leading his people out of Egypt, right? This decisive day, and the crossing of the Red Sea, and this big moment at Sinai. But you see it very clearly in the prophets starting in about the 8th century B.C. Amos, alas for you who desire the day of the Lord. Well, this is a new concept, the day of the Lord. What is this? Why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light. There's a cataclysm coming, a day, a time, and with it, a change. And Amos is saying it's not necessarily one you ought to be looking forward to. It is judgment. Isaiah 2. The haughtiness of people shall be humbled, and the pride of everyone shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. This is definitely judgment. This is justification writ large, not necessarily in a smiling way. Uh, but it means a change in the times. Then Jeremiah starts speaking out of, about it very clearly. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. The word new is pretty important. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors and took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. By the way, interrupt me if you have questions. Stick your hand up and start blurting things out. That's fine. Uh, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, a covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. And he starts to lay out what this is going to mean. But what it's going to mean is that the times to come will not be like the times in the past. These were brand new ideas in human history. Before people started saying this, before these guys were given these words to say, no one had ever thought this way. It's really hard to have a truly original thought. This seems to be original thinking. Um, it's very interesting. What it means is that the truth, something about the truth of the world doesn't lie in the big circle, that is, what, in what is always and everywhere true. Some, that is, in the realm of myth or in the realm of eternity. The truth somehow is in something that's only going to happen once. Um, now, for example, the ancient Greeks, well, they had a concept of history. They wrote history, Right? You have Herodotus, the father of history. History was not important to the Greeks. It was not an area that you could derive meaning in your life from. Myth was important. Homer and the gods, you know, and the, the, the gods doing battle, that's important. History is nothing. Because it just has to do with piddly little changes on earth, which are all going to get washed away as the times cycle back again. But here... What happens on earth somehow is true. And it's true in a way that determines what our lives mean. It's kind of big stuff.
So let's fast forward a little past the Hebrew prophets into the day of Jesus. This notion of the last day becomes current. It becomes the belief of good Jews that God will intervene for his people and that there will be a judgment and that, among other things, the Messiah will come and on the last day all the dead will be raised, if you were among those factions that believed in the resurrection of the dead. But when the resurrection happens, that wasn't in question. It's on the last day. And it means all the righteous. All the righteous. So this is standard Jewish expectation. Here we have maybe, I think, the weirdest thing that Jesus ever said. And it's really saying something. So this is John chapter 11. Lazarus has died. And Jesus, talk about missing your chance. Mary and Martha, his brother Lazarus was very sick, sent word to Jesus that one whom you love is sick. And Jesus gets the message and he delays. He doesn't come running. And when he finally gets there, he hears that Lazarus has already been in the tomb for days. And so Martha comes out to him. She seems to be the more direct of the pair of sisters. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's our time travel problem. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And she takes this as comforting in sort of a religious cliche way. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. She went to Sunday school. She read her catechism. She's got it. The resurrection's coming on the last day. Thank you. That's very helpful. But it's not more than any other rabbi could have told her. And it comes way at the end. And then Jesus opens his mouth and says this gobsmackingly weird thing. I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. What is he doing? What is he saying there? Jesus has taken that notion of the last day, which comes at the end of our history, at the end of time, and he's moved it right into the present with himself. It's just me. The last day is standing in front of you. Here I am, the last judgment. Everything that Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Joel and anything else, everything they were talking about coming at the end, it's right here. I don't know how to respond to that. I don't know how I would have responded to that. But they're unusual words. Which means that our... When Jesus speaks this way, their relationship to that decisive time, to that judgment, gets reduced down to one thing. It's just where you stand with Jesus. That's it. That's all there is. It's not whether you've got, whether you've prepared yourself before the last day. It's, well, how are you with me? That's all. So now we have a question opened up, and it's a huge <coughs> question. When is the resurrection of the dead. When is it? Not what is it, when is it? Because the image at the top is your standard picture of the Jewish view of time and history. There's this old world, and its end has been declared. There will be a day of the Lord that's a little explosion there, and then God will do something new. That much they know from the prophets. That much is established. At the end, the dead are all raised, and we have a new time. What happens instead? Well, we have somebody die. Just one guy. And then we have somebody raised. Just one guy. Not all the righteous. One guy. In Matthew, you have a few more, but only a few more walking around. Basically just Jesus. And then this old time, well, I'll ask you, did it end? Of course not. I think you'd know that, right? It didn't end. It just keeps going. And yet the biblical authors start to speak of a new time that's happened. Well, how? Where? When? What happened? What are you talking about? 
This dotted line is very important. It's not that there isn't an end at the end. It's that we need to connect it back to that moment of the cross. If we don't, we end up doing screwy things. When I say we end up doing screwy things, what I mean is we start to obsess about... I don't want to say it's something that the church invented because it's not wrong, but it's easy to misunderstand. And that is the notion of Jesus' second coming. Because if we have a second coming that's different from the first one in a fundamental way, where, well, we're waiting for the last judgment at the end and it'll be different from the judgment that happened on the cross, then the cross wasn't anything. It wasn't much. If, in fact, as everyone in the New Testament seems to agree, the cross was decisive, then we're waiting for only one thing in the last judgment, which is the visible end of this old world. Sight. That's it. It's the only difference. <clears throat> everything true, everything real about the new time has apparently already been established somehow. So we have this oddity. Only Jesus was raised. Could that really have been the last day of this old world when he was crucified? Yes. Let me make sure I got this right. I'm going to go back for just a second. So on the one hand, this is simple. The death of Jesus marks the last day of this old world, and the raising of Jesus marks the first day of the world to come. That's simple because I can say it in that many words. But it's not simple. It's not simple at all because the world has rolled on uninterrupted. This is what's created our confusion. Uh, this is what uh, the theologian Oswald Bayer calls being caught in the rupture of the ages. That we live somehow squeezed between two times and we have a double identity in a brand new time and in the old time and we don't know what to do with this. We're not just in two places at once, we're in two times at once. It's very odd. Right? And so what's happened practically because of this, that is just in human culture, is the notion of decisive change has entered our vocabulary. The notion of change in history and in politics has entered our culture to the point that we expect them now. Over time, they become less and less and less decisive, right? We hardly believe politicians now who say, we're going to really change things. Uh, we'd like to, but we can't. Because no actual end is in sight. All right, our problem with the second coming is that uh, we don't quite understand the wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff here. Um, and so, for example, weird ideas that Christians got. Baptism only covers your sins prior to the moment of that baptism. Well, because how could it cover for anything after it? <laughs> right? This is a notion that becomes current in the early church. Uh, that's a problem. The problem here is that this kind of very sort of rigid linear thinking about time, it refuses to let Jesus be an actual time lord. It does. Um, and remember the, 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 the hymn, crown him with many crowns, crown him the lord of years, the potentate of time. I like that phrase because I have no idea what it means. Um, but I think it means that he is as much the lord over time as he is over everything else. Right? Now, time for us is the law in its most basic sense, because you can't avoid it. Whatever it says goes. It, it determines practically everything about our lives, but Jesus is not the law. Jesus is free. And so when it comes to time, he is as free as anything. And so if he wants to be raised, if he is going to be raised by God in the middle of this old age, and we're going to say that's the new one, I, I guess that's what we're going to have to go with. But now we're going to have to figure a few things out. I had... Yes? I'm a little um, concerned, I guess, not completely understanding that you're saying that Jesus is the only one um, that was raised. Jesus, when I'm saying that Jesus was... When the Jewish expectation was that all the righteous would be raised on the last day, and that's what the word resurrection means. The word resurrection being applied to just one man getting up out of the grave, even if he's God's Messiah. Well, first of all, God's Messiah wasn't supposed to die. But second, 
even if you granted that, the idea that there could be the resurrection and it's just one dude. So you're talking about the Jewish leaders. Yes. That, that, was not, that was not on anyone's radar. This is why Jews wouldn't have found it immediately obvious. Well, Jesus has been raised. How interesting. What does that mean? Now you have to explain it. <laughs> Right. All of this stuff, yeah, exactly, right? Let's take this to us. When are we becomes the decisive question. If the death of Jesus actually marked, let's grant that the death of Jesus actually marked the end of the old age in some important sense, and the resurrection of Jesus, the beginning of a new one, when are we? What time is it? The disciples actually ask this question after Jesus has been raised in Acts 1. Is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? They ask just before the ascension. He doesn't really answer it. What time is it is what they want to know. This question seems to be lurking throughout the Gospels as people approach Jesus. Are we at the end? Is that what we're looking at? This question is also still current in the early church. So are we expecting Jesus to come back like right away? Are we dealing with just a few years here? What's going on? What time is it? It's not an idle question. It's an important question. It determines how we live the rest of our lives. What time is it? What time is it for us? Do I have any time left to fix myself? When are we? We have a few, a few actually, notably four different biblical authors using remarkably similar phrasing here. He was destined, just to show you, that he actually meant that the death of Jesus was the end of the world. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. There's our time traveler. At the end of the ages. These things happened to them to serve as an example, that they were written down to instruct us, on whom the ends of the ages have come. Now it's personal. The end of the ages has come on us. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the age, to remove sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now, the Gospels mostly do it differently. Um, in Matthew and Mark, at the crucifixion, you have the darkness. You have the temple curtain tearing in two. These are signs of the end. Matthew even gives you an earthquake. These are clues. John just puts it right in Jesus' mouth. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be driven out. He doesn't say it's going to happen at the end. He stands up in the week before the crucifixion and he says this. These are some of his last public words in the Gospel of John, in the 12th chapter. Now is the judgment of this world. Which judgment? The only one. This is it. Everything is being placed in relation to that decisive moment. So we have two times, but what's the relationship? When are we? How do we belong? Um, see what we can get with here. We have two friends to help us through this. They're good friends. Um, Bill and Ted are useful people. <coughs> because they help us think about, what am I doing? I'm screwing everything up. Let's see if I can get it. Oh, no. Oh, dear little computer. You seem unhappy with me. Oh, you are unhappy with me. You're not responding. Now are you responding? I'm going to keep talking, and if Bill and Ted show up, they show up. They're showing up. It's good for them. This room is also infamous for really bad connections. Oh, yeah, which is why this should be all, I, this, this should be completely loaded, and if we, get, if we get this, we get it, and if we don't, we don't. I'm not going to worry too much about it. Well, let's think about it this way. Our senses, our reason, our knowledge of history places us still in the old age. That's our experience of life. But Scripture actually, especially in some of those verses that we just showed up, goes one step further. And actually some of the preachers in the early church went, took it all the way further than that. It makes sure that we know how this old time and us in it stand in relation to Jesus. And does it this way. 
Um, Peter starts preaching at the beginning of Acts. This is on the day of Pentecost. And he says something remarkable because he's speaking 50 days after the crucifixion. 50 days after the crucifixion means, we need to make sure we have, oh, we have loads of time, don't we? Yeah, we've got loads of time. Uh, 50 days after the crucifixion means that what you have pilgrims and other residents of Jerusalem in town for the festival of Pentecost. Were all of them there for Passover? Probably not. Peter addresses the crowd at Pentecost. This Jesus whom you crucified has been raised. He has placed them in direct relation to an event which in many of their cases preceded their showing up in Jerusalem for the festival. Moses actually preaches this way in Deuteronomy too. He says that he's not addressing your ancestors. I'm addressing all of you who were there at Sinai. But it's, a, it's 40 years later. They weren't all there at Sinai because they're about to enter the promised land and so the previous generation has died off. This is an interesting technique to say to people who were not there, you were there and this is what you did. This Jesus whom you crucified. Um, okay, Ted, you going to be able to speak for us? How'd it go? Bad. Our historical figures are all locked up. My dad won't let them out. Can we get your dad's keys? We could steal them, but he lost them two days ago. Only we could go back in time to when he had them and steal them then. Well, why can't we? Because we don't got time. We could do it after the report. Ted, good thinking, dude. After the report, we'll time travel back to two days ago, steal your dad's keys, and leave them here. Where? I don't know. How about behind that sign? That way, when we get here now, they'll be waiting for us. See? Whoa, yeah! So, after the report, we can't forget to do this, otherwise it won't happen. But it did happen. Hey, it was me who stole my dad's keys. Exactly, Ted. Come on. This is a great moment, though. This is a great moment, because they're trying to figure out what happens is all the historical figures that they've gathered up in their little time machine and brought into the present to help give their report so that they can be judged favorably and graduate high school and then go on to become great rock stars and Wild Stallion's music will determine peace and prosperity for the rest of human history. Uh, so that this can happen, they need to get their historical figures out of jail because they've been locked up by Ted's dad in his office. He's a cop. And so they're trying to figure out how to deal with this. <coughs> Well, I could do it if I had the keys to my dad's office, but he lost his keys two days ago. Wait. And they were like, well, couldn't we use the time machine to go back and look for him? Well, yeah, but we don't have time. The presentation's coming up. Oh, well, what if we do it after the presentation, then come back and do this, and then just leave the keys here now? Or where should we leave them? How about behind that sign over there? And so they go and look, and there they are. And Ted said, no, we've got to remember to do this or it won't have happened. But it did happen. Hey, it was me who stole my dad's keys. Uh, don't follow the logic too closely. <laughs> Here's what's important about it. I'm going to make you guys go away. I'm not going to get you. That's fine. Right. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Ted finds out something in that scene. He finds out, finds out that he is the one who stole his dad's keys, even though he hasn't done it yet. Now, in Peter's preaching, we're being placed in relationship to the death of Jesus. This is something you did, even though I didn't know I did it. But then this kind of preaching goes on. This is Jesus himself. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the story about the bush, how God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is God not of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Simply because he speaks of them in the present tense. <laughs> That's all there is to it. Ted finding his dad's keys, because he stole them in the future, actually in the past, having come from the future, or he will. You're, utter, you're completely clear on that is like another word. 
from God. We have one word that locates us in the old time. You crucified Jesus. Whatever form you want to put that in. You want to call it original sin, it's fine. But there's another word, and that word locates us in a different time, in a new time. And the word works this way. Your sins are forgiven. What is true for us is being determined by the future. It's being actively determined by the future. God has established a new time, and in that new time, you are righteous. That's what our relationship to that time is. Now, life in these two times is sort of a complicated thing. And here we need to look a little bit at some other fictional devices to sort of get an angle on them. Uh, it's interesting when you start thinking about time travel in fiction because it doesn't actually have to be stories about time travel. To see how we're trying to get an angle on this to sort of rip a better word out of this world in one way or another. Uh, down in the right, lower right-hand corner, I have a book called Looking Backward by Edward Bellamy. It's a weird old time travel story. It's actually just written as a flashback by somebody in the year 2000, looking back over the previous century and noting how America became a socialist utopia. All it is is a recommendation of socialist politics. That's all it is. Um, it was a big hit at the end of the 19th century. Why did it do that? Uh, because I hit the wrong thing. I'm a jerk. Uh, here at the bottom, we have Newsroom, and we have uh, the South Park character, Captain Hindsight. They are exactly the same thing, <laughs> if you have ever watched Newsroom, right? Newsroom is a brilliant show in which Aaron Sorkin travels through time to tell us how the news should have been reported six months to a year ago. <laughs> I may be being unfair, but not very. Um, I've got a little Star Wars crawl in there, just because it immediately locates us in a different time, Right? a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And then he uses another device. It is a period of civil war, rebel spaceships striking from a hidden base. Uh, why does it do this? Why wouldn't it start way at the beginning of the story? Because well, that's boring, actually. And because if you're gonna call a movie Star Wars, then there should actually be a war, not a long lead up to a war. And so you start in the middle of the war. He borrowed this directly from Homer. This is what you do in the Iliad. Homer starts his story about the Trojan War towards the end of the Trojan War. Later he'll go back and explain kind of how it got there. It's not that important. You're already located in the middle of this event. What's Homer saying? He's saying that our reality is war. Look, you've been stuck in the middle of it. Yes, there are reasons for it. Don't think too hard about them because you weren't going to avoid it anyway. It's unavoidable. It's interesting. Um, is Botox time travel? A little bit. <laughs> Uh, this is a weird one. Uh, Robert E. Howard's uh, short story, The Valley of the Worm. Um, this is a really odd device for a time travel story. Uh, he creates a non-Conan character called James Allison who can remember his entire genetic history. And so he says at the beginning of it, and I love this part, uh, I have to read this to you, uh, because it has to do with this church, sort of, not really. I will tell you of Njord and the worm. You have heard the tale before in many guises wherein the hero was named Tyr or Perseus or Siegfried or Beowulf or St. George. But it was Njord who met the loathly demon, demon, eh, demoniac thing that crawled hideously up from hell and from which meeting sprang the cycle of hero tales that revolves down the ages until the very substance of the truth is lost and passes into the limbo of all forgotten legends. I know whereof I speak, for I was Njord. So he's telling about a prehistoric early human figure who battled a great worm, and this is the origin of all myths about men and dragons. Interesting stuff. The point is that a time machine is just a device, and it can be an actual like technological device in a story, like a TARDIS, or it can be a purely literary device, like starting us in the middle of the Trojan War. But it's a device to locate us relative to an event. Relative to an important event. That is, relative to an event that must justify us in one direction or another. Are we righteous? Are we not? How do we stand with God? How do we stand with the world? Who are we and when are we? 
are we out of time? So time travel, a story that's actually about time travel, just makes something explicit that's really in a lot of our stories. This is important when we deal with scripture here, because I talked about Peter's preaching. Let's go one step further. This is how this actually comes out in the New Testament. This is mind-boggling. You have died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. What we expect to be in our future, our death, that's in our past now. Or Paul says it about himself. I have been crucified with Christ. Have been. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For Paul, at least, and I think for the New Testament authors broadly, and I think this is what Jesus means by sending his disciples out to preach, he has provided a time machine. That word that says two things. First, you have died. The end of the old world, the judgment, that's come upon you already. How much time do I have left to fix things? Not much. It's over. You already missed it. And then a new word. Your life is hid with Christ in God. It's no longer you who live. It's me. I'm the resurrection and the life. The truth of the future has come back to us in the present age. But notice what happens. Jesus doesn't rewind the world to the Garden of Eden and make us get things right then. Right? That's Groundhog Day time. <laughs> How many chances of this are we going to get? Uh, somebody did the math on this and figured out that Bill Murray was probably there between 35 and 40 years of the same day. You think, oh, that's great. It's a heartwarming story. Yeah, what's the next day of his life like? How about the one after that? Is he going to do this endlessly, try to get all of them correct? He's only gotten through one day, and it wasn't necessarily that important a day. It's terrible. So, he doesn't rewind. He doesn't just give us a second chance. Because there's no guarantee that a second chance goes better than our first chance. You know, in my fantasies, I think about what I could have said to my brother to pull him out of that pit he was in, and when I would have had to have done it, and how that would have had to have worked. This isn't what God has done. It's not even close. Likewise, we haven't just been transported into a future where none of that happened. It did happen. This old world came to an end. Um, I might say theologically it came to, my, to an end for my brother all the way back in 1967 when he was baptized. And practically, to sight, it came to an end on the 26th of Dece December 2013. The end of the world arrives to each of us in our own time. This is what Jesus means by coming back into our time. Not only once on the cross, but now through the lips of his preachers. This is what we actually announce in the gospel. The end of the world coming upon people in their own time. And then carrying them forward into the new age. The mistakes we've made, they're not erased in the sense that they didn't happen. We're not rewinding behind them. We're being carried through the black hole of his death. So that we don't have to worry about making them again. It's not that I go, get to go back and get another chance at this presentation so that I do it even better. It's that I completely suck. And judgment has come. And our Lord says, now here for you is a new time in which all is revealed as good. This quote from Ernst Käsemann here, who is a, I guess that's my last slide, that works. He's a German New Testament scholar. Um, has exerted some, a lot of these ideas from about time and justification. Well, they come from him, they really come from Luther. Uh, but he's a German scholar who discovered this in the 20th, rediscovered this in the 20th century. I bring him up 
because Paul Zoll wrote his dissertation on justification in the work of Ernst Kaseman. So I'm going to leave you with one line from Kaseman. Baptism, and you can say this about baptism, you can say this about any word of the gospel because it's true. Baptism is projection of the change of the ages into our personal existence. That's what's going on when we hear the gospel. That's why it's good news. This actual moment, that's why it's a decisive moment when you first heard and believed. And then every time after when you heard or believed, because that's the moment of judgment and the moment of new life. Anyway, that's all I got. Uh, any questions or things you want to talk about? Never did get Bill and Ted going. That's too bad. Please. I guess comments and welcome input. Sure. From anyone else, I have two young girls, and ever since they put on from that everyone is going to die. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to comfort them mm -hmm. by, you know, telling them that we actually live in a different form, a different dimension, a different, a new age. Mm -hmm. um, but I also tell them that it's part of the great mystery is not to understand everything. And I'm always looking for input, how to comfort my children. <laughs> I think you can say one thing more. The issue for us Christians is not that we're not going to die, uh, nor is, that it, is it that it doesn't hurt. Uh, and speaking of eternity, as, as the case was for Martha, it's, it's not that it's not a comfort, but it's a little far off and it's a little vague. And Jesus interrupts that answer with, well, you know, here I am. Um, what's being said here, Paul is even, when Paul says... I was crucified with Christ. He's not speaking, let me be careful with this, he's not really speaking metaphorically. What he means is that day that Jesus was revealed to me and knocked me off my horse, that day when Jesus was apocalypse to me, I died. That is his death, which means death is already behind me. <coughs> to sight it isn't, but in truth it is. Death is behind us as Christians. We don't live forward into death. That's what the world does. It thinks that death is coming for them at the end. And so the, whole, the consuming question of our existence is how to get around it. But in the death of Jesus, death has already come for us. It's behind us. Which means the only thing we have in front of us is life. Death is a reality. But it's a past reality. It belongs to the old age. And what we have in faith in Jesus is something new that's already passed back. It's actually, it's, it, it's, it's, well, it's it, the end of the world really came. That's, <laughs> that, that's the message. The end of the world really came, and it was for you. Not impersonally, but specifically for you. Anything else? Not as much of a, of a question, but more of a comment. And I, I'm sure you're aware, but there's this strain of thinking and more academic criticism of Christ and yeah. these kind of things that Jesus was something of a failed prophet in a way, because the end didn't actually come. People think that he prophesied this end, but I love what you're saying because you're saying the end that he prophesied did come. It did come, and yet, from a historical perspective, we have to agree with that. Right point. He was a failed prophet. He has no disciples left at the end. He made no meaningful historical change. You know? He says, well, when, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Well, he came, and no. <laughs> no, he didn't. So yes, he's a failed prophet, and we have to take that failedness with absolute seriousness. But that failure that closes the age... It's not victory, it's failure that closes the age. Thank you for bringing this out very clearly. That failure that closes the age is what God raises into a new time. Right? They're not wrong when they say he's a failed prophet. We should own it, we should embrace it, and say yes. Because that'll keep us from creating a fantasy Jesus who was successful and loved. Who was the stone the builders accepted. Never happened. Let him be a failure. And then watch God work through failure.
right? That's good. I heard this bishop once say, if we've already died, uh, if it's behind us, um, we've already died the only death that matters, that makes us like really dangerous people. <laughs> we are. We are. Well, we, we, yeah, holy shit. It means we might not be scared of anything. <laughs> what do you threaten us with? Uh, okay. In other words, it sounds like we have lunch coming fast, and uh, I don't want to hold you in here. So if there's not, if there's not anything else, then uh, then we're good. Thank you very much. Thank you.